looking at Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16. But before I, before we read, I want to ask a question, more of a rhetorical question. Who runs the church? Who runs the church? I think your understanding of what the church is informs how you might answer that. So if you think that the church is kind of like a business, well, then you might say, well, of course, the, uh, the board of directors runs the church. If the church is a movement, well, then it's the volunteers. It's the people that run the church. If it's an institution, well, then perhaps there's a bureaucracy shrouded in tradition that runs the church. Who runs the church? Maybe your answer is informed by the kind of church that you grew up being a part of. So maybe you grew up in a church in which there was a lot of staff, and you didn't really do much, and the pastor didn't really do much, but the staff did all of the work of the church. Uh, maybe you grew up in a smaller, maybe more intimate community kind of church where every few months everyone got together for a big meeting and everyone passed the mic around and got a chance to express their opinions. And then at the end, everyone voted and kind of majority rules. And so that's how the church was run. Or maybe you grew up in a church like the Catholic church or, or a similar kind of church in which your local pastor kind of just did everything that he was told to do from someone else far away. Who runs the church? It's an important question to ask, especially in our day. You know, there are major consequences if the people running the church don't take it seriously. Um, we live in a good time in which leaders are being held to account for their uh, injustices and abuse, especially in the church. Uh, there's books written and podcasts made and lots of talk and conversation about ab abusive leaders and narcissistic leaders and dangerous leaders in the church. This is an important question that we need to ask. Who runs the church? And like I just said, we're about to embark on this next chapter in the life of Story Church in which we are going to be identifying and training and voting on and electing and appointing and ordaining our own leaders. We have to ask the question, who runs the church? In Ephesians, Paul is writing a letter to a church, reminding them of all the wonderful and loving and gracious and merciful things that God has done to rescue us from our sin. And he's told them that, he, that God did this by uniting us to his own son. And because of that, we have the forgiveness of our sins. But not only that, by uniting us to Jesus... We have been united to one another who's been united to Jesus. And so we've been brought into a new community around the one person of Jesus, and that community is called the church. And Paul says that this church 
is to bear witness to that wonderful, powerful, loving, gracious, merciful acts of God, although we come from various backgrounds, various traditions, various even beliefs, that we have been brought together through the one man, Jesus Christ. We are now, as the church, being built together to be a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That's the church. And Paul, in Ephesians 4, verses 7 through 16, answers the question, who runs the church? And his answer is clear. Jesus runs the church. And what I want you to get out of this message today is that because Jesus runs the church, the church is equipped to do the work of ministry that we have been called to do. Because Jesus runs the church, the church is equipped to do the ministry that we have been called to do. So let's look at Ephesians 4, 7 through 16. We'll pray, and then we'll answer the question how does Jesus run the church? All right, picking up in the middle of chapter 4, verse 7, we read this. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have shown your power and your might and your love and your mercy and your grace to us, rescuing us from our sin by uniting us to your son, Jesus. We thank you that although we were dead in our trespasses, we have been made alive with him. We thank you that because we are united to him, we are united to one another. We pray that you would lead this church. Use your word now to teach us what does it mean that you run the church. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how does Jesus run the church and equip us to do the work that we're called to? There's three answers. I'm going to take them one at a time. First, we see that Jesus runs the church by giving gifts to the church. All right, we see that in verse 7. Paul says, grace has been given 
to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. That is, Jesus has given gifts to each person in his church. And these gifts are gifts of grace. He's not talking about saving grace, although it is true. Being part of the church means we've received saving grace. No, he's talking about grace gifts and what we might call spiritual gifts. These are abilities and passions and capacities that Christ has given to each one of us in his church. These are not things that come out of ourselves naturally, but by the Spirit, they've been given to us. That's what Paul says as he's quoting from Psalm 68, that that Christ has ascended to the right hand of the Father in the highest of the heavens, and there he's given them to us. That's what he quotes from Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Psalm 68 is referring to the idea that after a military campaign, the victor, whether it was the military leader or the king, would conquer the enemy and receive the spoils of war, and then would march home and ascend the steps of the highest point of the city with the captives behind him, and then he would take the spoils of war and give them to the people. That's what Psalm 68 is saying, and Paul is saying, Christ, who has been victorious over death, our greatest enemy, has now ascended into the heavens, victorious, and gives us the gifts that he has for us. Paul is saying that everyone in his church has received gifts from Christ. It makes me think of, uh, maybe you remember this, I, I think was too young to remember watching it, but I've heard about it. In 2004, there was a special episode of the you know, popular, that's an understatement, popular daytime talk show, Oprah. Um, this one episode, she brought up 11 uh, guests from the audience to the stage. They didn't know what was happening. They all happened to be teachers. And not only teachers, these were all teachers who had expressed somehow in the application to be on the show that they, uh, that they needed a new car to get from their home to school for the upcoming school year. So Oprah brings them on stage. They have no idea what's happening. And she surprises them by giving them each a brand new car. And the whole audience is going crazy and I mean, the people on stage are just like ecstatic and hysteric with their joy. And Oprah turns to the audience and says, there's one more car out in the parking lot. There's one more person in this audience that's going to go home with a brand new car. And as she's saying this, her, uh, you know, the, the off, offstage helpers are bringing out these trays with these boxes beautifully wrapped in bows, and everyone's getting a little box, and she says, in one of these boxes is one more set of keys. And so on the count of three, we're all going to open up these boxes, and whoever has the set of keys, you're going home with a brand new car. And everyone's so excited and, and, and hoping it's them. And on the count of three, everyone opens up their box and realizes every box has a set of keys. And the whole audience is going crazy. And everyone's laughing and jumping and crying and hugging one another. And you see Oprah on stage saying, you get a car, you get a car, you get a car. Everybody gets a car. Friends, Jesus 
has risen from the dead and ascended into heaven, and he looks out over his church, and he says, you get a gift, and you get a gift, and you get a gift, and everybody gets a gift. Everybody gets a gift. What are these gifts? Well, the New Testament, there's a few places where we find these lists of these kinds of gifts that Jesus has given to his church. In the first century, uh, there were the gifts of prophecy and tongues and apostleship and miracles. And, and throughout the long history of the church, you know, the saints of Christ have received the gifts of teaching and serving and, and giving and leadership and wisdom and knowledge and faith and prayer and encouragement and many others. Christ continues to give and give and give gifts to his church. How does he want us to use them? Well, in verse 12, Paul tells us how the church is to use these gifts. He says in verse 12 that the purpose of these gifts that Christ has given is that the church would be built up, that the church would be united in our faith, that the church would increase in the knowledge of Christ, that we would grow up into a maturity, that we wouldn't be people tossed around and carried away like a ship out on rough seas, that we wouldn't be tossed around by theological error or by the abuse of power or by the following of the ways of the world. Rather, verse 16 says, when each part of the church is working together, that is, when each part of the church is using the gifts that Christ has given us, the church grows. Friends, this is why Jesus has given you gifts, so that you would serve the church and that this church would grow. What gift has Christ given you? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever considered how Christ has gifted you to serve Story Church? You know, we've got a worship team, we have a kids' ministry team, we have a hospitality team. We're always looking for additional help. The Lord knows he did not give me the gift of social media, and so we could always use help posting pictures and making our digital presence better. In a few weeks, I say we're going to start the catechism class for kids. I love help teaching that. I, I love help bringing a, a loaf of bread and PB&J and making meals for the kids. How has Christ gifted you to serve this church now? Jesus runs the church by giving every member of his church a gift so that he or she might use it in service to one another so that the church would grow. That's the first answer. How does Jesus run the church? By giving gifts to the church. Second, we see that Jesus runs the church by giving people to the church. 
So not only does Christ give gifts to the church, Paul tells us that Christ gives people to the church. Look with me at verse 11 again. We read this. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Notice that Paul doesn't say Christ gave the gift of apostleship or the gift of prophecy or the gift of evangelism. No, he rather says apostles, prophets, evangelists. These are people that Christ has given to the church in order to help the church grow. Now, these people, they receive the gift associated with those roles, but it's important that we see what Paul is saying here, that within the whole community of the church, some members of the church have been given a particular gift to be used in a particular way and in a particular role in the church. This is what church historians have called the offices or the officers of the church. These are individuals who have been given a gift from Christ in order to perform a specific task in a position of leadership and authority in the church. And if we look at this list of these officers here, we can see why these are set aside uh, for their role of leadership and authority. So like the apostles and the prophets, these are men who first testified to the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. These are the people that Jesus commissioned as apostles, and then in the early church, they were prophets that revealed the will of God to the new church. Paul, earlier in this letter, says that it was the testimony of the apostles and the revelation of the prophets that formed the foundation upon which the church is built. It was the revelation of God's will in the fullness of time that it was through his son that he would save his people, and then the apostolic message and testimony that Christ died and rose again. That was the foundation of the church, the apostles and the prophets. And if we look at the evangelist, which we, we might think of today as a messenger of good news, which certainly was the case, but if we look at Titus and Timothy, who are called evangelists in the New Testament, and look at what they were called to do, we see that this role uh, it had many different functions. So if, if an apostle needed to send a letter, like the letter to the Ephesians, to a church, he would oftentimes give it to one of these evangelists who would then go and bring that message of good news. Or, or if uh, one church was collecting money to help relieve the burden of another ministry or another church or another community, they would send that money along with a message of good tidings with the evangelist to bring that message of good news. Or if an apostle was building and planting a new church, but then saw, oh, there's a city over there that needs me too. I'm going to go start over there. I'm going to leave my evangelists behind to establish what I've already started. That, that's what Timothy and Titus did as evangelists. So these were very practical communicators of the message of the good news of Jesus. And then we get to this shepherds, teachers, pastors, and oftentimes they're grouped together. 
this role of pastor, the shepherd. These are the people with the primary responsibilities of protecting and guiding and leading and nourishing and comforting and healing and educating the flock of God. And one of the primary means that the shepherds use, but which all of them use, is the ministry of the word. It is the word of God that they use to do these roles. So these five offices listed here deal specifically with communicating the word of God to the people of God. That is what sets them apart in their role of spiritual leadership and authority in the church. You might wonder, though, looking at this list, why don't we have prophets and apostles today? It's a good question. In, in the PCA, of which we're a part of, we believe, and we have good arguments for it, that there are what are called two ordinary and perpetual offices. That's the office of elder and deacon. So elder is like that pastor-teacher from this list, and deacon we see other places as identified as an office. And um, so what about those others then? And I hope you'll pardon my brief aside here. There is a difference between these ordinary officers and then the special ones. In this list, we see both of them, special offices and ordinary offices. Special offices, like the apostle, the prophet, even the evangelist, they were used in crucial ways to help establish the church, especially in the first few centuries as the church was really beginning. And then ordinary offices, they were used and have been used throughout time to kind of sustain the movement of the church after it got established. So if we think of the church as kind of an advancing kingdom against the kingdom of darkness in the world, then maybe we can think about these two categories of offices in military terms. Um, I ran across this story during World War II in 1944 of something called the Operation Market Garden. And I'm not a history buff, but I read up about it. An Operation Market Garden had two things. First, uh, their goal was that Allied troops were going to attempt to take over some key strategic locations and cities and bridges in their advance towards Germany and to free elements of occupied Netherlands. And the first wave of this was that they actually had the largest single airborne advance take place, where they dropped over 41,000 paratroopers into the area. These were special ops, you know, people who are equipped to make quick decisions and secure ground real quickly and equipped with special skills to get the job done quickly. So they were dropped in first to take that land. And then after they took those key strategic places, well then, 50,000 troops, the infantry, came in on foot to sustain and maintain those bridges and key lands that they had taken over. And, and so it was this two-wave thing. Send in the special ops to take it quickly and then bring in the infantry behind them to sustain it. I think that's one way to think about the difference between special offices and the ordinary. So the special offices of the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, they were right at the start. They, they helped get the church going. They took key strategic land, 
and you know, they advance the kingdom. And then after them, throughout the history, the ordinary offices of the pastor and the elder and the deacon, they have come in to maintain and sustain the church. That's just one way to think about it. All right, let's get back to the passage. How does Paul define the purpose of these offices? You know, what is the purpose in the church in Ephesians 4 for having these offices of elder and deacon? Well, let's look again at verse 12. Paul says that Christ has given these people, these people with unique gifts to serve in a specific way, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Did you catch that? These key people with key gifts are given to the church. Why? To equip the church for the work of ministry. So it's shepherds and teachers and deacons' job to equip the saints, that's the church, to do the work of ministry. Often, we think that it's the staff perhaps the college ministers, the overseas missionaries that do the work of the church. No. Paul is saying that these officers, they are given to the church to equip all of the saints to do the work. So the real ministers of the church is you. I'm here to help you do what you are called to do. What does that look like? It, it means to serve and to equip the saints. It means to get everything in the right order, to set things in their proper place. It means putting the right people in the right place with the right gifts at the right time to do the work of ministry. Sometimes the work of a pastor to equip the saints, it looks like a doctor setting a broken bone and seals it with a cast. It means doing the hard work of walking with people through healing and restoration after sin has broken down their lives. Sometimes, like a, like a fisher on their knees mending their nets, equipping the saints looks like me getting on my knees and through prayer, listening to the details of your life, trying to untangle the weeds of what's going on and offering help and advice where I can. Sometimes it means bringing someone who's backsliding back into the fold. Sometimes it means offering a word of warning before you walk off the path. You know, Jesus says it's like a shepherd who goes out for the lost sheep and carries the sheep home. Officers do what we are called to do so that you can do what you're called to do. What is your ministry? And I'm not just talking about serving one another in the church. No, Monday through Saturday, in your homes, with your kids, what does your ministry look like? With your family, on holidays or on vacations or on weekend trips, what does your ministry look like? At work, with your colleagues, what is your ministry there? In your community, with your neighbors, having cookouts, going to community events. What does your ministry look like? 
I am here to help you do that. This week I was getting together with Ted. You guys know Ted. He's preached for me a couple times over in Shaker. Um, He was saying that he got a phone call from one of their members saying, hey, we got an email from our preschool teacher letting us know that the teacher wants to be called Mrs. this year and not Mr. this year. And we've, we've decided to remove our son from class this year. But now our neighbors and their friends, my kids and their kids are friends, they're going to ask me, why did we back out? Can you help me love our neighbors well? Can we meet up and talk about how to do that? That is your ministry, to love your neighbors. And it's hard, and I want to help you do that. What is your ministry? Are you taking advantage of the gift that Christ has given you to do that? You know, we're entering the season where we're going to be appointing leaders from amongst us. My challenge for you, let them help you. Let them serve you. Let them help equip you to do the work you have been called to do. Jesus runs the church not only by giving gifts to the church, but by giving people to the church. All right, I'm looking at the time. I don't have time to get to my third point, so I'm just going to summarize. The last way that we see in this passage that Christ, Jesus, runs the church is that Christ gives himself to the church. We see here that Jesus is the head of the church, that as we grow up, we grow up into him. And earlier in chapter 1 of Ephesians, we read that that God has given Christ as head over everything in the world to the church. Christ is the head of the church. He has given himself to us. And that means at least two things. It means that he directs the church And he gives us the paradigm for leadership in the church. He directs the church, meaning we are called now as ambassadors of the victorious, risen, ascended king to go and proclaim the good news of his victory over sin and death to the world. That is the mission he has given us, okay? The church is not to go and fight a culture war, and we are not to go out and be social justice warriors. We are to go as ambassadors of the crucified and risen victorious king. Okay? That's the direction of the church. Nothing else. But he's given us the paradigm to do it. Paul in the parentheses says, isn't the one who ascended first the one that descended down to the lower regions of the earth? It's confusing. What does he mean? I think he means this. Look at Jesus who loved us and served us and is our leader. How did he do that? By descending and then ascending. That's the paradigm of leadership, death and resurrection, serving others, humility, and then being exalted. Whether you are an elder or deacon, a ministry team leader, a teacher downstairs, your greeter at the front door, your folding bulletins, whatever form of leadership you have at Story Church, formal or informal, the paradigm for you is this, follow Jesus, pick up your cross. Die to yourself and follow him. That, that's, that is the paradigm of leadership in the church. We, we, have, we are not to serve ourselves, but to remember that Christ Jesus came into the world, 
not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many.